podcast 1999 uh this is matt here say hello mark up oh, hello mark no mark hello hello mark who's probably listening at some point but uh he had to tap out he he had a a wee bout of it but the docs brought him through he dragon, had a wee bout <laughs> dra- dragon con um <laughs> gotcha <laughs> yeah um but yes we'll, we'll we'll be well wishers and wish him well so he he said he said uh our guest today from Mission Log to Orville, Captain Mike Richards. He said he said he trusts you to just be the co-host in this one and not the guest. So, <laughs> well, I hope uh, I hope the doc does pull you through. And uh, <laughs> sorry about Dragon Con. Would have loved to go to that. Have not been to anything nearly uh, nearly that epic. Uh, although SDLV isn't bad. Yeah, that seems pretty big. And having not been to him, I'm I'm an Atlanta native, and I've never been to Dragon Con. Of course, I've been oh, to wow. Japan since 2010, so that's an awful lot of Dragon Cons I wouldn't have gone to. So, and I spent the the 2000s, well, some of that in Japan, some of it like running around on in Maine and Canada and chasing whales. So, eh, oh, no, no, no real regrets there. <laughs> chasing whales to see them, not not to harpoon them. But we did right. joke if the school it was a environmental environmental education thing so we joke like if we ever did need money we could mount a harpoon on the front of the of the schooner so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's awesome but, uh today we're looking at the episode ring around the moon uh mike where, where's your fandom on this one because you know mark and i are more like curious and kind of getting into it like i've seen some before but i've Part of the conceit of this podcast is we are not hardcore fans. Some of our guests are. Uh, so, where, where do you want to rate yourself? Are, are you just man, like dipping a toe, or I don't know. You know, a um, little background. I, I I watched Breakaway when it premiered in the states with my older brother, and I think that was about 1975. So I was eight ish, seven or eight, um, with my brother uh, upstairs on the crappy TV because my parents wouldn't let us watch anything good on the family TV. So we're kind of huddled around this thing. So I have been a space 1999 fan for the better part of 50 years. I don't remember ever seeing this episode before. Um, I watched this. And as soon as uh, I was going to say Ted Cassidy, but Ted Clifford came in, I was like, I don't remember this. So um, I fell asleep the first time I watched it. Uh got through it the second time and the third time it was uh uh not to answer your question i guess um not my favorite i would say it probably falls oh maybe towards the top end of the bottom third yeah i was looking at week and uh, i'd already written my trivia or whatever but it was saying that this is a very divisive episode with um Mm -hmm saying some people consider it the worst of season one and then other people are like this is the apex of science fiction um i guess i'm going to come from the more positive side just because it's really trippy and that appeals to me having a guy with a tripometer on a different podcast so um <laughs> i do like that you know you got a brainy one-eyed planet so that's right there that's got some style points 
literally brainy if uh, you're a listener who has not recently watched this or doesn't remember it's a it's a it's a brain eye planet which is pretty i don't know i thought that was cool <laughs> same well uh before i get too deep into it uh let me do said trivia the original air date for this one was january 15th 1976 so your 75 date checks out for breakaway the episode was directed by Ray Austin. Before his directing credits, he made a name as a stuntman in North by Northwest and Spartacus and served as a stunt coordinator on The Avengers, the one with John Steed and such. He'd start directing on that show as well and would later direct 50 episodes of the Family Channel's Zorro uh, somewhere around 1990. I, I think that show was running. I think it said 1988 to 91 right. or something. I didn't write the dates down. Oops. The script was by Edward D. Lorenzo. He'll write a few more Space 1999s, and he also contributed scripts to The Wild Wild West and Miami Vice, which is a pretty weird duo of shows to have credits on, but good for him. <laughs> Max Faulkner was our doomed Clifford, Ted. His main claim to fame was appearing in multiple Doctor Who serials in the 1970s. I thought I was going to write down like an awesome list of genre films. I was like, oh, these are all Doctor Who serials. Okay, so... If, if you know, look up a list of seventies Doctor <laughs> Who serials. They they go. They have fantastic names. This episode has an original score by Vic Helms, Sylvia Anderson's son-in-law. Uh, Sylvia Anderson, of course, being one of the Andersons that make the show. I I didn't write that down. Why am I saying this? Okay, he assumed he could just hum his ideas to the musicians or something on the day of the session, and that would work out. It did not work out, and music editor Alan Willis saved the day by trans describing Elms' ideas and conducting the musicians. While the music was originally supposed to resemble Rizbel, there's a weird amount of prog rock vibes lingering around. So, uh, Hey, Mike, do you have my notes uh, on hand by chance? I do. I guess I'll uh, just save my voice. I'll, if, if you don't mind, can I toss you that summary? <laughs> yeah, not, uh, not a problem at all. Um... I know I have them. Let me just okay. alt tab until I can get them. Edit. No problem. Sorry, my first line has the word cray cray, so I hope you can handle that. But uh, <laughs> there we yeah. go. Yeah, sure do. Um, Technic. Do I do I start it with recap, prologue, act one, anything like that? Nah, you can uh, just blast off. Yeah. Ted, uh, blast off. Yeah. Uh, technician Ted Clifford suddenly goes cray cray, goes wild on Moonbase Alpha's computer, and tries to strangle Commander Koenig. Then Ted dies and a glowing orange orb with an eyeball brain envelops the moon. They are the Tritons. They melted Ted's brain and now claim the moon as their captive. Koenig sends his main man, Alan Carter, and a doomed man named Donovan to check out the phenomena. The orb's force field sends their eagle careening back to the moon and Donovan dies. In the recovery mission, Dr. Helena Russell is snatched away by the aliens who have transporter technology, put her into an evening gown to have a chat, and send her back to Moonbase Alpha. Of course, now she can be activated by the Tritons to transport around, send classified information, and so forth. They've honed their mind control techniques, and it'll take a few days to melt her brain. Commander Koenig does not want that brain to be melted, so he takes off in an eagle to confront Triton. He's armed with the knowledge that planet Triton has been destroyed, so the probe no longer needs to function. It takes two tries, but he gets his moment to chat with the Triton probe and talk it into destroying itself Captain Kirk style. The Eagle team makes it back, 
and Dr. Russell has beautiful optic nerves. All right. Thank you. Yeah, it sounds interesting when someone else reads it. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I just done a podcast on Plan 9 from Outer Space, and I said, um, like, if I, if I wrote dialogue, it would sound like Edward's dialogue, probably, like, because right. that's just not my writing forte. And having you read it, especially at the uh, middle, I, I kind of felt the, the Ed Wood of my own writing coming through. That's all right. First time through. So without <laughs> practice, it read it read very well and was easy to uh, easy to follow. Some of my unlike some of my run on sentences with. But, you know, you know, God, God love the semicolon. You can just run on forever. Yeah, yeah, it's like that Lonely Island song, except they get it wrong, don't they? <laughs> um, you said, I, I actually did not see your notes, uh, but you said we we had similar takes on some of this. Uh, where, where did you, I'm curious where you saw the commonalities. Oh, the commonalities was with the uh, the brainy, the brainy uh, one-eyed space planet, um, the talking. Uh, I wrote, this is kind of like, this is a lot like Kirk talking a computer to death. And you put, this is kind of like Kirk talking a computer to death <laughs> in your notes. Um, so the summary. Yeah. Um, so I saw, saw those two things together. Um, the lovely optic nerve. I was like, uh, my comment was, so her optic nerve is lovely and her middle ear is perfect. Dr. Bob, <laughs> come on. Are you flirting with Dr. Russell? What a sweetie. Okay. <laughs> We see that happening. Um, before I guess we get too deep into the into the weeds, I think this has one of my ten favorite seconds of film of anything ever, which is the uh, the moonwalk disco. I was like, oh my god, that's the best thing. That, oh that yeah, ten seconds. There's there's like no reason for them to suddenly go to disco on the soundtrack. I'm like, oh, I love that. That's that. I want that. I want to live in that. I want that to be my world. <laughs> Except it was 1976, and and you had to. Um, I thought it was funny because I, if I remember right, the the sequence, the low gravity lunar gravity sequence and breakaway was lauded for just being groundbreaking special effects, and I don't think they wanted to spend the money to replicate that in this episode because they all just kind of like shuffled when they when they went out onto the lunar surface there were no big jumps there's no kind of slow-mo like in breakaway it was just sort of like we're gonna shuffle and that'll simulate earth gravity good enough for you know episode 19 <laughs> yeah yeah probably or or four in our order actually this is yeah there this is like the prisoner another show where the orders you're just like wild to the winds so um... you know it, it, it's funny because I've, I've noticed that too and i'm watching on peacock tv and the the tile, you know, the the little picture that describes the episode uh, was from uh, Earthbound, so it had um, Simmons in the uh, in the plastic box with the platform shoes. Oops! Spoiler <laughs> alert! Yeah, so I was like, "That's not this one. I know that one." Yeah. So, yeah, uh, having been doing the rewatch so far. I do feel like the production. I, I have the like the A and E set from 15 years ago, and I, I believe it's production order. This one's number four, and we have been found finding that it makes a little more sense in production order because we meet um, Doctor Russell's ex-husband in episode two now, while we're still in like Earth orbit. Black gotcha. Sun blasts us into another galaxy in episode three, so now we're starting to encounter totally bizarre stuff and. 
this episode, you know, which was interesting because they were like, what do we know about planet Triton? And Victor was like, well, I don't know anything, but let me check the computer. Why would the computer know anything if this is a planet that's literally a, a, a black sun away from where they were outside the solar system, outside anything that's been explored? So I, th- I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's not like they didn't have like a continuity person. They had different people running the episode. So it's never really going to completely fit. I mean, again, there would be people suggesting the broadcast order would probably be the way to watch it as well. Mm-hmm. So and, and as I've been inviting guests, most of them are kind of, I think, looking at the broadcast order. So, you know, I, I really I really like when it comes to Star Trek, the original series production order, because you can see things evolve. You can see things develop. Yeah, you, you don't want to start things. with a man trap. <laughs> right. You want to start with the Corbomite maneuver. <laughs> right, right. So or, or the pilot even or the two pilots. Right. You know, oh, sure. Is, yeah. That's the way to go about it. And you see the yeah, right. the evolution of it kind of becoming the, the standard mm-hmm. show from from a few weird production uh hiccups. Yeah, but exactly right. You know, following the pilots. Uh, Space nineteen ninety nine seemed to pretty much have their production down in the first episode. That that excuse me. I guess that's part of like the Andersons vibe. Like, you know, get all the design, make everything look standard, and then let her rip. Oh, it it looked beautiful. You know, I'm working my way through Doctor Who right now, and I'm on season fifteen, which is um I think the third or f- I could do some quick math, but I don't want to do that in public. Uh <laughs> third or fourth season of the fourth doctor. So it was three, three, five. I'll say the fourth season of the the fourth doctor. And I just watched a series or serial called the invisible enemy, which took place on planet Triton, uh, excuse me, Titan, not Mm. Triton. And the, uh, in the trivia, the um, planetscape for Triton, excuse me, Titan was, (laughs) was reused moonscape from space 1999. Now this is, after space 1999 had its second series aka second season and i mean the visuals in space 1999 were so far and away ahead of you know anything doctor who was doing a couple of years later um you know literal uh spaceships you know dangling from a string kind of thing where i mean i mean the shots of the 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 eagle um and just moonbase alpha itself were just gorgeous Always yeah, I mean, the, the worst day. you can say for the effects now are like, wow, it looks like the 70s. But hey, that's a plus. So no problem. It, like It kind of <laughs> definitely is, I'd say. I mean, you're talking about cost cutting. So once we get inside the probe, it's what? It's complete blackness except for a couple of trippy lights and weird projections of scenes on Moonbase Alpha. And I was definitely like, get- okay. yeah, we get these segments. It's like, hey, I these it's like watching an avant-garde movie for a minute or two, which... I love that sort of thing. I I have DVDs and DVDs of avant-garde film collections. So, yeah. <laughs> I was seriously getting like an empath vibe at that point where they were just like no budget, just a black room, uh, no background, and just, just the characters. Which is one of the only TOS episodes I've never seen. I think that in Cat's Ball. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to save but, something, right? That you can say, oh, and here's a new one. I think I've probably seen half of the empaths, to be honest. I think it might be I don't like the empaths, but. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's one of those ones, like back in the days of like, hey, is, is it a good one? Yeah, maybe I'll flip over to uh, something else. And I will, I will back some of those season three episodes. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they just there was just a list on whatever it was like the fifty seven greatest episodes and the list it's a weird wacky list that doesn't make sense 
but they put this way to Eden as number fifty-seven. It's like, okay, I appreciate that move at least. You're you're putting it on the yeah. top fifty-seven yeah. Trek episodes ever. I like that. <laughs> they was, reach. They they, they they reach, baby. Um, yeah, you know when uh, you know you get you, you get a guy playing the. A bicycle wheel and you get Spock playing his uh his Vulcan loot, you know, it's uh it was just a it was just a jam session. There are things guy from love. uh guy from Rambo just kind of in a loincloth kind of thing. Yeah. Uh Mark has referred to a while liking the episode generally, he has referred to uh-huh. a few of the plots as stupid, <laughs> like the <laughs> science behind it, right? I think this one, well, the eye brain, you could call like cool, stupid, I guess. But uh, otherwise, I think this one does kind of check out. I mean, for me, it seemed like kind of a weird, even more than the uh, the TOS episode in in Star Trek that they, what was the um, one that sort of became the motion picture? The Changeling? Yes, thank you. I could think it was the Sentinel. I knew that was wrong. Um, But yeah, I feel like this is more like a dry run for the motion picture than that was. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I liked the fact that, you know, they they were assuming this was or calling this planet Triton. Um, but obviously it was like a brain and an eye, which is like the ultimate. Like if I was going to bring like the like the ultimate sensor, like the ultimate computer sensor device, like what do you need, right? You need a brain to process the information. You need an eye to be like a sensor for it, right? So uh, the Triton's yeah, in space. So you send this uh thing out to be your, you know, eyes and uh, be a sensor for you like that's kind of the perfect perfect thing and uh i I do like that that was what they thought was a planet it was actually more of just a device that they but, that they figured out but other v'ger things um dr russell basically becomes the um the probe the the yeah human the ilea probe, probe the ilea mm-hmm. probe so that's going on um trying to send classified information from the computer that uh using that right so because they yeah. have the, the lightning is trying to steal all of the the enterprise plans yeah, yeah fleet so. information all of that here, here they're like I, especially uh barbara bain on the uh keypad i thought was like really funny she was just like tickling down and then going back up like a, like like clearly she's not typing in anything <laughs> oh and it's so funny because with her and with uh ted clifford god rest his soul um <laughs> I, I whenever i see speed uh film that appears to be sped up man it takes me out of the production like it just does knight rider did that a little bit airwolf did that um benny hill I, yeah. <laughs> but at least at least that was scored properly <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay that's a good point but uh and and you know even next gen did that with data working uh working his magic on the l cars from time to time I just, you know, I think you can just go with like fast human typing. And that's uh, for a guy, for a hunting pecker like me, that's uh, that's impressive enough. I was just having a um, a podcast re-listen of the, the original Star Wars. Uh, so um, listening to people watch the film without watching the film again. But hey, it's it's kind of actually I've been doing a lot of that recently because it's kind of a fun mental exercise to try and just replay the entire movie in your brain while listening to people talk about it. So, right. Um, so I actually kind of like it. I'm walking out in the rice field. It's a nice sunny day. And I, I'm like mentally playing Star Wars in my head as a as an exercise. So it's cool. Anyway, the point was one of the things Harrison Ford really does maybe the best for sci-fi is when he's piloting the Millennium Falcon, he looks like he knows what he's doing. 
if you asked Harrison Ford, he would, oh, I'm just pressing damn buttons, you know. But maybe because he was a carpenter and worked with his hands a lot and he has giant hands, he just on the Falcon, he always looked like he knew what he was doing, which is very see, different than the actors in here. See, I could swear I heard a different, a little bit of a different take on that at one point where he got in, he sat down, he asked, how do you fly this thing? And, you know, George Lucas or whoever was on site said, what do you mean? How do you fly it? You just fly it. And he goes, no, I need to know like how you operate this thing. So it looks realistic. So I think there was like, and again, I could be imagining this, um, but I, but I do think I, I did hear Harrison Ford deliberately wanted to know what he was to do like with the buttons and switches and knobs and, and, and even levers. You're, you're probably right. This was a comedy bit, assuming what you would, what he would say if you asked him today. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in 1977, you're saying I'm going to actually say you probably have the more accurate story there. <laughs> and uh, hey, he's a pilot. Now he keeps crashing his planes, but uh, yeah, he, he would know a bit about that as well. So, I mean, he would. How many Cessnas has he taken down? It's been like I, I don't three. Know, you know, I know the one. I know there was the one on the golf course, and apparently, he was guilty of. Um, and this came from the NTSB report. I heard secondhand, so um, I'm going to share it anyway because what the hell? It makes good makes good gossip. Was that he was basically like, "Hey kid, I'm going to take my airplane up for a ride, get it fueled up, and get it ready for me," and then he just went out and flew it, and did not realize that it was not fueled and not oh. really, really pre-flighted properly. So you assume so, the kid would listen and the kid did not listen. Okay. You would think the kid would, you know, yeah, do it, do what they, they had one job. Andy right? Jones tells you if get the airplane pull ready. up the plane, you do it. Cause you might have the um, Peruvian natives chasing you uh, and a snake in the, in the plane. One snake. <laughs> Damn it. Short round. You had one <laughs> job. <laughs> Actually, I, mean, um, I just I just watched that last week because my my daughter suddenly decided she really wanted to watch Indiana Jones and it still holds up. Still a good movie. I I had to leave halfway through to go to orchestra practice and I was like regretting it. So that's kind of funny. I, I have not seen um, I've watched uh, what we all know now, what we all know as Raiders of the Lost Ark or Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, I've seen that many, many times. I've seen uh, The Last Crusade many, many times. Uh, I've seen Crystal Skull twice, and I've seen um, the new one once, but Dial of Destiny. Um, but Temple of Doom, I know I saw in the movie theater. I think I may have seen it one other time, but I'm hearing such good things about it lately that I need to go back and rewatch that and kind of have that on my uh, on my list right now. Um, that, that's um, I, I just want to plug in. I, I did watch that because when my daughter's interested, we got we got the Blu-ray set of the first four. Uh -huh. But um, watching it and then this is going to dovetail into Space 1999 a little bit. But um, watching it, I don't know how many times I've seen Temple of Doom because when that came out, I was maybe five years old and I had the comic book like the, you know, so yeah. I read that a lot and I'm like, well, how much, how many times do I remember seeing this movie? But I actually just read the comic book um, because I do remember reading that quite a bit. And uh, my dovetail was, was going to be the novelization of this particular episode, which is pretty whack. Um, you know, it's the 70s. Oh. You can change everything, right? Yeah, so, I, I was, I was going to bring up one more. Uh, similarity with the motion picture. And uh, remember how touchy uh, James T. Kirk was in the motion picture? 
Um, he was sort of like uh, very controlling and not giving people a chance to do their jobs. Well, you got Koenig, who's all like, uh, I need an autopsy. Helen is like, I don't know if I can do that. That might not be, might not be possible. And he goes, make it possible. And then you got uh, Alan Carter who's like, ah, this is a bad move, man. They already killed Ted Clifford. Um, you know, Donovan's going to die. I don't want to be next. Uh, this is the wrong move. And he's like, that's an order. You know, Mr. Pilot, are you going to yeah. do it or not? See, so, that that's one of those things where I feel like it makes it make a little more sense in the early run of the show. Right. Because he's like still maybe flipping out a little bit that they've just been launched across the galaxy. So <laughs> really, really good point. And um, yeah, still kind of building that building that relationship, building trust both ways on that but uh towards the end where Conan said something along the lines of if i'm not back in 15 minutes blast off out of here without me i'm thinking at that point alan might have given him about 10 10 minutes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um here, here we go this is i found the the novelization so i'm just going to read this straight from wiki um oh yeah the writer ec tub took many liberties with the details of this telepre teleplay uh it was published in 75 so before the episode aired um uh, the probe's home of Triton was no longer a planet two million light years from Earth, but the moon of Neptune, which in this narrative had gone missing some few years before 1999. Uh, the Bergman creates the anti-gravity shield specifically for the purpose of penetrating the Triton ship's force field, having gained the knowledge required to perfect the technique from the atomic waste explosion earlier in the novel. Uh, so this is actually in the breakaway novel. Okay. Having been convinced of the demise of its home, the probe chooses to self-destruct, though not before warning the Alphans of their impending encounter with the Black Sun. So I guess this is like immediately after Breakaway, because it's in that novel now. So right. kind of interesting. Uh, I think I prefer the way the TV show does it and just have it be in weird deep space. But I, I want to be in weird deep space, you know? Yeah, I think weird deep space is the way to go, because I mean, I, I think sort of the, the in-universe ex explanation is that they keep hitting maybe maybe wormholes and time warps and and other things that just kind of they just sort of meander around time and space and cover great distances in this moon on this moon yeah <laughs> moon like um it, it's a little more trek talk but it's making me think i remember when next gen uh first started airing and you know people weren't really cut warm on it on season one or two right it took a while right to take yeah and i remember when collars yeah, I, yes. I remember one of his, um, not complaints at the time, but uh, gripes. We'll call it a gripe. Hey, man, I got a gripe. Is uh, like, he was like, the original show, the Enterprise is just already out in like deep space, right? Just by the camera. Mm -hmm. And he didn't like in Next Gen that you would see the Enterprise go by like Jupiter and Saturn first. He's like, well, that feels like every episode starts from Earth, you know, and he didn't like that. <laughs> oh, okay. So, I mean, I guess Space 1999 also shows you Earth at, in the first shot of the, you know, titles, but quickly blasts out the moon. But that's part of the basic story, right? I mean, part of the Enterprise isn't it left Earth, you know, whereas with the moon, that is a major story point. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. It, uh, you know, and they kind of give you the the background information with the, you know, introductory um, verbiage uh at the beginning of the episode kind of kind of as to why they're out there and, and what they're what they're doing um i would like to, a little more thanks to alan carter um only all but four of our eagles are damaged thanks alan thank you we could really use some of those now 
I wanted an eagle count. We've we've already been talking about this. Like, you know, eagles blow up every episode, and they're on a moon base. Can they prefabricate? Um, I think Mark had the idea that'd be fun if over the course of the show, like Moon Base Alpha becomes like smaller and smaller because they keep reappropriating parts of it to make more eagles. It <laughs> <laughs> could be doing that, and, and I wonder, like, what uh, you know, maybe they could mine for. Um... I don't know. I've never seen any kind of mining operation on Moon Base Alpha, but you know, if there are minerals, uh, iron, steel, you know, that could be uh, used to make eagles and mine, possibly. So it's, it's um, not as bad as the Voyager situation where it's like, seriously, people, you're out of shuttlecraft now. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen like twelve go. It's not a big ship, that's and that's why I think it's. <laughs> and I think it's so awesome that in Prodigy that they had the uh, the shuttle fabricator like uh, installed in the Protostar so that they could just make new shuttles whenever they whenever they need one. The problem is that Voyager eventually makes a big deal out of it when they do build a new shuttle. But by that point, they've they should have already lost all of their shuttles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, I mean, so no. I'm willing to give Moonbase a ton of slack because at least they should have fabrication shops like, you know, dedicated ones to building eagles anyway it definitely you know it definitely does look like wherever the is below the level that the eagles come up right so we you know the eagles come up there's a great shot today of an eagle coming up from under moon base alpha and the moon buggy was there it looked great it looked, it looked phenomenal but whatever's down there it looks like it's a big hangar with maintenance and people working and I would say more, if not the ability to repair, definitely the ability to repair an eagle. But uh, I think they could, I think they could fabricate easily an eagle down there. Yeah, yeah, because they they are like three hundred people on on Moonbase Alpha. You could have a good thirty person team doing that, right? Without you know pulling your labor thin. I, I guess we're down to two hundred ninety eight uh, now, uh -huh. but I, I don't remember three hundred's number or not. But uh, whatever, <laughs> something I like loved. That. Uh, I love this line. Um, he says to Kano, try every possible variable in the computer. And Kano replies, yes, sir. Um, my response might have been, that might take some time. To try every to possible variable. and beyond. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what about John's headshot on his comlock? Like, does everybody have a headshot on their comlock? I've, I've, have they ever, like, focused in on that in, in another episode? Hmm. I don't know. Uh, I, I'll, I'll throw out the design element that really stuck out to me in this episode. And I, I guess I've probably seen it in several episodes, but in this one, it just leaped out at me is uh, the monochrome globe in Koenig's office. Yeah, you're pointing I have your that microphone. same note. I have that same note. Why the giant globe of Earth and why haven't I ever noticed it before? So the, again, I'm not not an astronomer, not a astrophysicist. But the way I understand it is the moon is is uh, is in a is is in a locked orbit with Earth, meaning that the um, the same side of the moon always faces Earth, right? And it's already been established that they're not on the dark side of the moon, because that's where you know Pink waste uh, disposal. Yeah, that's where waste disposal areas A and B were. Um, so they they can look up and see while they were in orbit. Uh, before breakaway, they could look up and see Earth anytime they wanted. Yet they have got this giant monochromatic globe of the Earth in Koenig's office. I didn't get. Then again, uh, I got Some a people globe have moon behind globes. me on my desk. Some people have moon globes. Well, yeah, you got an Earth globe there. So you can't see the Earth. Well, you can see the Earth when you look out the window, but not like that. <laughs> not like that. <laughs> yeah. 
But no, I, he probably bought it because it was cool. <laughs> it was cool as hell. I want one now. They sell those Wait. in the Moonbase Alpha gift shop. Um. Oh, by the way, 311 personnel. By this time, I'm willing to say my 300 guess is probably correct because we've already seen a few people bite it. So we've seen a few people bite it. And then we had, a you know, the one where it always stands out in my mind is there's an episode where a bunch of people bite it. But then they kind of hit the reset button at the end of that. And everybody's OK. I don't know if you covered that one or not. I uh, maybe it's war games or something, which is still in yeah. the future for us. Yeah. Again, though, I think it's earlier in the broadcast order, much later in the production order sort of thing, because they made the show what, like two years before it actually went on television. I think filming was 73. So. Oh, no way, man. That's amazing. That was it was so, so revolutionary for that. Um, what do you think of uh, Commander Koenig getting through his entire pre-flight and then looking over and saying, all right, Parks, you're ready to go. Wait. You're not Parks. <laughs> well, uh, I, I mean, you know pre-flights better than I do, but you could get engrossed in one, I guess. I, I guess. I mean, like, okay, so so knowing how touchy Commander Koenig was in this episode, I could I could see him being the guy that just comes in, sees a sees a um uh an unimportant human in the right seat, goes about their business. And doesn't even acknowledge the fact that it's it's not the human that he thought it was until until it's the guy he knows really well. It's the guy he knows really well. Seeing him, (laughs) and I was wondering, like, like why would you want Parks when you can have Alan freaking Carter? Um, (laughs) But you know when and that scene when they were trying to cut the engines uh, really hard, maybe Parks has a you know slightly longer arms and would have been able to cut the engines a little bit sooner. Maybe maybe Parks was the right guy for the job. Oh, yes, yes. Boo to the G-Force effects, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were, I think they were trying to recapture some of the magic of Breakaway with the G-Forces that they were all Failure. Down failed. To. They failed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they that did. was not good G-Force effects at all. And I also loved when, when, when Koenig did finally push the cut engines button uh, that the, the shuttle just, I'm sorry, the eagle just kind of appeared to stop. And I'm like, that's not how that works in space. You'll stop accelerating. You won't stop moving. And they just taught you about geometry so well when you see the beam from the uh, the eye uh, reflecting off of the the shields. That, I, that yeah, was that's because cool the shot. the angle of incidence equals the angle of reflection. I, I got it's been a while. C's in trigonometry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So I learned more about it from this episode probably than I remember from high school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that one I... shot. <laughs> now the shot of uh, Dr. Russell at the airlock, that was fantastic. That was like nice. She had like the creepiest little smile on her face. <laughs> that that was really, really well done. She just shows up out of nowhere in in, in her spacesuit, right? In her EV right. suit. Yeah. And just they make a the point smile. That, oh, she was like, Oh, I wasn't in my spacesuit when I was in the probe so it must That's have right. oxygen which even with that bit of a leap of faith just to pop open the airlock okay okay exactly <laughs> yes because here they are they don't really know where she went or what happened to her she's saying i remember being in an evening gown you know uh not in my spacesuit talking to this tritonian like that name tritonian but how much of that could have been in their mind versus reality and are you willing to forego the spacesuits as john koenig did with him 
and what were there four purple sleeves with them um and he was like no no you won't need that i mean the prometheus people they took their helmets off way too early but they they did a little bit more checking at least than this <laughs> lots of people you know I'm, I'm thinking of uh um shadow realms on uh season three of the orville where they went over to the um you know weird creepy space station with no uh uh, with no EV suits, but that worked out fine. So there's nothing to see there. If you guys yeah. want to check out don't uh, touch that the walls. episode, don't touch the walls. <laughs> <laughs> don't touch. Yeah. No touchy. I mean, I, I, I teach kids. So it's like, just, just don't touch the kid next to you. What's so hard about that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so uh, did you, did you notice Koenig <laughs> when he was in the, uh, the Triton, uh realm the triton zone zone um and it's all it's all dark and there's just that projection of of helena i guess on the wall or just being projected somewhere and john goes over and tries to like hug it and and touch it um that gave me just serious young frankenstein vibes on that when he's like walking around trying to snatch at the snatch at the music he's right there (laughs) (laughs) well like i said the um the the might be part of the charm of the show is the dynamic between them is so weird because the actors are married the characters have a professional scientific distance but that breaks down as the show continues so (laughs) and eventually the alphans are gonna have to you know alphan um, yeah. and there's, you know, only so many, uh, suitable, uh, as, as, you know, Tom Harris tried to explain to Harry one. Kim. Yeah. There's only so many, uh, suitable candidates out there. Um, only so many Delaney sisters. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Delaneyans. Uh, and, oh, what a treat, what a treat not to jump the timeline, but what a treat in season two, uh, when we, uh, when we finally get to, uh, see some more out of those two. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, I, I guess I'll, I, I have my, this is my season one question that I ask at the end of each episode, and I feel okay. like I'm not gonna, I'm gonna have to change it for season two. I still have what twenty episodes. To think about it, but at this point of the show, uh, we're kind of breaking down like what percentage you can use, you know, out a hundred percent if you want. How much of this is sci-fi fun, and how much of it is existential dread? Um. Boy, this one, I, I actually think this one has probably higher, a higher percentage of existential dread. Um, in fact, I kind of think this whole episode was probably existential dread. And, and I liked that about this episode, um, you know, kind of the big ideas I have uh, written down. And my notes are um, not being aware of your own demise, right? The Tritons or or the Triton computer, the Triton probe thought they were still a, a big um, kind of force to be reckoned with. You know, I, the, the spokesman, if you will, the sensor of this, um, you know, powerful uh, civilization. Um, So overcome with hubris that uh, they didn't accurately assess the fact that, you know, they're no longer what they thought they were, that things had that their planet had been destroyed, that they are out there just a remote control, 
a droid or a drone out there uh just just operating on autopilot going out and sensing things and um didn't even know that their civilization had been completely decimated um so i thought that was a really kind of powerful uh realization for um the triton you know one-eyed brain planet to to come across and i guess it was more than it could handle right because that was kind of kind of what what why it blew itself up real good yeah because v'ger uh actually achieves its purpose and uh becomes yeah. one with the creator so v'ger right. gets a happy ending in the end where yeah this is kind of like a well th this is the landrew ending right if, if we're keeping star trek yeah. things where you just make uh -huh. it explode because it can't handle it can't handle the truth you know yeah yeah it sure it sure can and then I, I liked the um the question at the end where victor was just sort of ruminating on man all that knowledge you know what could what what became of all that knowledge um and uh martin Co martin koenig martin landau playing tv's john koenig said uh perhaps knowledge isn't the isn't the answer then what is and I thought, you know, what is, what is the answer? Is it, is it relationships? Is it um, progress? Is it the struggle? Is it finding a home? Uh, what is the answer? I think for the Alphans, it's probably finding a home is as good an answer as any. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I know they're, I mean, they keep threatening to do um, not project, but uh, operation Exodus, like every other episode, because they really want to. You know, it's like uh, Shaq's wanting to blow up the, the warp core in Lower Decks. But although it makes more sense <laughs> to find a planet to live on. So and the um, the little short they aired on September 13th, 1999 at the convention, the, uh, the little code of the series has right. the final step of that operation, you know, being that's the one with Sandra given the sign off, right? Right, right. So they do in the end because that I think that's their main goal, right? So yeah, um, you know, uh, keeping up with the Trek references, they're they're going to be the thirty sevens, except they'll be the ninety niners, you know. <laughs> yeah, they'll be the ninety niners. Um, you know, and and another little Trek theme when uh, when Koenig at the end said, "Perhaps knowledge isn't the answer." Then what is? I, I all I could think of was, "What of Lazarus." <laughs> what of Lazarus? There, I I do love that episode. By the way, uh, the alternative factor is, is one hey, of my it's... when when I was four years old, that was my favorite TOS episode because that... it has trippy lights. <laughs> it is got trippy cameras. lights. It's got that 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 you know that that uh, scene where they do the the negative. It's um you know very subtle differences between you know the two Lazari. Yeah, uh, as they they kind of bounce back and forth. Um, uh, that's that. You're not the only person to tell me that that's their favorite episode. Oh, it's not now, but it was when I was four. But I when, still when have a, a I still have a certain joy for that one because it's so whack, you know. Yeah, and and for me, actually, my my existential dread meter. I'm going to top it out at seventy percent and thirty percent sci-fi fun for this one. Actually, I man, I really think you nailed it. Yeah, I I, I was going to go. Um, I don't know if I ever gave a number. Well, I think I said almost all, but I was going to say 60 to 70 percent. I was right in that range. So, well, I think Black Sun, I think we notched up to 95 percent. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, this is not like you're saying, wow, yeah, it's pretty dready. And it is. But doing the rewatch now, uh, it's like, well, it's got a little more sci fi fun. It's got trippy lights. It's got the 
whack effects. It's got the moon disco, you know? So yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I, I was like 30% sci-fi fun for this one. Black Sun has plenty of trippiness too, but even the trippiness is like kind of like, you know, as the computer is telling you, 0% possibility of survival. <laughs> <laughs> Which it turns out to be wrong about kind of, I guess. I don't know. They yeah. get old and philo- philosophical first. Uh, but yeah. And, and uh, you know, I have to I have to wonder if they, you know, as soon as they decided not to um, go with uh, Operation Exodus and Breakaway or kind of at the end of Breakaway when they were talking about it, um, that was kind of their last best shot, right? Like if they if they didn't think they could make it now or the computer didn't think it would make it right, it said uh insufficient data human decision required and john was like no we're not going to do that that'd be that'd be dumb <laughs> but in these later episodes they're you know with black sun it's saying it's saying not even human decision required it's just saying like you it's, are screwed 100 yeah <laughs> that would be a hundred percent um dumb so you know and the quite uh, the existential dread question is a is I, I love that you came up with that um because just looking at life, right? I mean, you know, we want to be thankful for what we have and we want to enjoy the time that we have here and we want to be optimistic about the future. Um, but life ends, right? I mean, you know, to quote William Sh- uh, William Shatner from, you know, his record has been, which is 20 years old at this point, um, everybody dies, Right. Everybody you know dies. Except Everybody ever gonna meet dies. Um, he's gonna die. He even is. said, by the time you're listening to this, I might be dead <laughs> in the song. Um, so it's uh it's it's that that balance or that that human gymnastics, that mental gymnastics to stay optimistic and, and look forward to the future when it's at least for you personally. And for everybody you know, in the short term, it's going to end badly. And you've just, you have to be prepared for that while also being um, proactive about uh, creating a better life and building relationships and propagating the species and doing all those things that that really, really are important Um with that knowledge that at its core life ends and when it does end it's tragic and we're bo- i don't know how to answer that but i think this show's trying to ask that question in a lot of ways we're, we're both hardcore trekkies there are things we would definitely say that franchise does better than this but i, I mm-hmm. one thing i would say space 1999 definitely does better is when they do make those wrong decisions and those failures um even more than Trek, they're applying some kind of logic to it. It's like, let the computer figure it out as far as it can, because we don't have the time or energy to go that far. And then human decision required. I mean, people are saying it's cold and clinical, but that's because they're trying to very logically assess the situation and come up with what they think is the best solution. And it's not always right. So, you know, yeah, um, that that's a really, really, really good point. Just the only caveat I would put in there is that if you're going to, have somebody um, put information in or, or interact with the computer. Um, it should not be Ted Clifford because they know nothing about computers. Yeah. yeah. In 1999, <laughs> he knows nothing about computers, <laughs> but I, I, I do wonder if um, 
that's part of, I guess, why Barry Morse, as great actor, does not show up in series two, because as the professor, the main science advisor uh-huh. on the on Moonbase Alpha, being now in a different galaxy, the only thing he can say is, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that's realistic. That it's that's what he as a scientist, that's what he should be saying. But it makes him, you know, because a lot of Trek is like, I got a hunch, you know. Kirk just gets lucky. That's why he keeps not blowing up. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's got great instincts. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, and, and a lot of luck involved, but, you know, and I think that, that, that human, um, intuition, if you will, is, is sort of the, sort of the, the selling point of the show of that show in a lot of ways is yeah. that, okay, I've, I've heard the emotional side. I've heard the logical side. Now I've got to take all those things and, and use those intangible human qualities that only human beings have and make a decision. And this one seems to be more the left brain, right? Where they don't put much emotion into it, which, you know, I mean, that might, again, people complain that might be blunting the dramatic edge of season one. But if you were lost in space, uh, not on the TV show, lost in space, but in this way, maybe, you know, you, you want to, bear down on the scientific method a little more you know <laughs> yeah it de- you definitely would um i wish i could find this review i've looked for it several times and i'm starting to wonder if i didn't imagine it but it came out right after the series premiered so as a uh this review was you know uh contemporary with the release of the show and it said it was um like Star Trek. It said it said it's like Star Trek on methylamine, which I think is some sort of like methamphetamine. But I remember specifically it said methylamine, um, and I've been <laughs> trying to find that review methylamine <laughs> for a while because Jessica and I were talking about Space 1999. I I was trying to introduce uh, the ship some some topics on Mission Log of the Orville that were similar, and she was not familiar. So I said, it's kind of like Star Trek on methylamine and uh, could not find the review. So if anybody can find it, uh, please point me towards it, because I would love to see that again. Sure. Yeah, I I don't know what that uh, chemical construct is, so maybe that'll help us. I guess I can just research. Well, I, I, I think I, I stopped listening at meth, so I kind of <laughs> at that point I thought, okay, I kind of know what this. I kind of know what they're getting at. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I guess Star Trek on acid, but uh, Star Trek itself already seems like it's on plenty of that. So yeah. you can't really... sometimes I tell people it's like it's like Doctor Who and Star Trek had a baby, but not the good baby, like not the not the Arnold Schwarzenegger baby. It's more like the Danny DeVito baby. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, hey, but never forget, Danny DeVito is a proper leading film man in the late 80s. No doubt. He, he is sounds still, so you weird know now. God love him. And he's still crushing it like on Always Sunny and stuff like that. And he is involved with so many projects with younger people that, um, you know, as I, you know, enter my, uh, I don't know, I'm five and a half decades into this now. Um, and that's, man, I try to work with younger people as often as I can because I just don't want to end up as one of those uh, guys of a certain age, just, you know, screaming at the wind about, you know, how things aren't the way I think they should be um, because my mental model got stuck, you know, three decades ago. So good for Danny DeVito, man. Maybe maybe it's good that this is that this shows the Danny DeVito baby. I, I screamed to the wind about the loss of record stores, Still, I mean, I know we have a few, but 
uh i can i actually i think i've said it before in japan i can still pop into a tower records but they've greatly reduced their stock and use that floor space for like eight k-pop bands like it's a whole section for one <laughs> k-pop group now <laughs> we went to uh we went to tower records in sacramento um and it was just it was just a restaurant i don't think there was any record store associated with it anymore they kept the name and it was one of one of the first tower records locations but it was not a working record store which made me sad no the ones in japan are still functional record stores their stock sure. is just and they still have a decent classical stock but yeah their their rock pop and uh you know soul and rap has been greatly shrunk down so Basically, it's, I just step in there for a nostalgia fix till they, I guess, finally close that because people are just stepping in for a nostalgia fix at uh -huh. this point or, or for the new BTS album. So I guess they still make some money up of that, but uh, <laughs> something <laughs> like that. Uh, did you have any other big points you want to throw out on Ring Around the Moon? No, just, you know, for me, honestly, it felt like a bonus episode. You know, I mean, there are so many that I've seen so many times and when i started watching this i was like i don't remember this guy where do you get that briefcase why is he typing so fast why did why did paul just jump over the desk instead of going around the desk like i did not remember anything about this episode it was like i was watching it for the first time um and i'm glad i revisited it and it was uh i think it did have a it had some good effects it had some some very trippy ideas and at the end, it had some good existential questions. So that's uh, that's kind of where I landed on it. I'm I'm glad I watched it. So if I'm glad I watched something and you know spent uh, or watched it you know three times and then talked about it for an hour, then I think that's pretty uh, pretty good endorsement for it. Okay. Yeah, I think I got through most of my notes. I I, I won't go full Norman Lau style, but I will say I put notes for the Alan uh, lyrics for the Alan Parsons project uh eye in the sky and uh bruce springsteen's blinded by the light and my notes and made sure to put in the wrong lyric for blinded by the light i do have one question for you before we go yeah sure. um do you not push buttons with the middle finger because because uh it's your generally your longest finger or maybe second longest and it's uh we i i push buttons with my middle finger all the time oh i do japan it's not really like a thing so much so i will read books for very small children pointing to the pictures with my middle finger and my <laughs> wife my wife hates this I'm like it's japan nobody cares <laughs> but as a teacher is fun because i walked into a class a high school class a few weeks ago and um one of the students had his middle finger bandaged up and I was like, oh, <laughs> how did that happen? I got to just, uh, I held up my middle. Oh, was it, did, did you say something bad to someone in or do this? And they were like, <laughs> so the class thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> so yeah, no, just, just pushing buttons on the flight deck with, uh, with your middle finger. And depending on who you're flying with, you might do that with, uh, with more emphasis than if you're flying with somebody else. <laughs> no, people in Japan do not give themselves the finger. If you hear a honk, it's usually a thank you honk. Oh, Wow. Like, especially older people, like uh, coming to my neighborhood, there's a spot where, where cars can like block where we come in. So um, I'll usually give a wave if the car is nice enough to leave some space. But yeah, my father on full honk, right? It's, it's, not oh, a get, it's not a get out of the way. It's a thank you honk. But yeah. you know, as an American, though, it always sounds like a honk, right? So yeah, <laughs> I can't get my head quite past that. Um, well, what's going on in your world, the Mission Log world? 
Uh, well, Mission Log is is on a little bit of a hiatus right now with the uh, with the SAG and the WGA strike. Um, and I, I should was... just throw out really quickly while you're mentioning this. Uh, this is a Lord Lou grade production, so I felt okay starting it in the middle of that strike. Just if anyone's wondering. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. This is this is this is yeah. This is uh, this is not yeah not under under the uh, uh, the the yeah. umbrella of struck work. I'm sure um and so so they're they're filling in their content with some other things one of the things that's very interesting is that uh earl green and norman lau are going to uh uncover some of the earliest scripts written by gene roddenberry and dive into those uh many of these have never been um uh shows never got made or maybe a pilot got made uh but never aired so they're going to look at these things uh and that podcast will show up on the mission log feed as a as a show called genealogy and really really looking forward to that um not too long ago jessica and i just got done covering the graphic novels or the comic books uh written by david goodman with artwork by david cabeza and so we we did six episodes of that as well as a supplemental with david david cabeza uh on mission log the orville and uh we're looking forward to hopefully good news on season four once we get done with the with the strikes and uh we'll be dropping the audio from uh the orville panel in uh las vegas that jessica and i moderated uh at some future date um and the uh, mission log the orville feed okay as for this it's podcast 1999 i'm not quite sure what the socials are because as we're recording this um you are having the auspicious date of september 11th it is september 12th in japan and this podcast actually premieres tomorrow because it has to premiere on september 13th doesn't it it sure <laughs> does so not a lot of time to edit so i'm glad i botched that recap real good on you <laughs> <laughs> uh well i did i did spring it on you didn't i uh but you could support this another podcast we do on patreon at podcastio podcastius where we're under no legal you know strike stipulations but we we've ordered our our game a little bit recently there's time enough podcast which is usually a twilight zone podcast but we've uh put the lens onto the public domain twilight zone precursor slash contemporary one step beyond and we're currently uh having a look at some of those episodes which is you know we're going to get back to the zone so it's kind of an interesting little study in something similar that um pretty much everyone i've brought on for that show so far has been like well i've heard of the show but i've never seen it which is where i yeah. started too so it's kind of an interesting exploration uh films and filth where we typically look at the top 100 and bottom 100 films as voted on by imdb but we're keeping that unstruck just in a sh solidarity display but for october that does give us the option to have you know go for creepy weird non-struck work so we're looking at um one of the luchador mexican films from the 70s uh co-host luke's choice i've chosen the herschel gordon lewis film 2000 maniacs uh 10,000 maniacs did take their name from that movie they just thought they needed more maniacs. oh no way yeah, and um, a few others. I don't remember what the other creepy ones are off the top of my head, but they're they're coming. Uh, and then there's the I love game. the fact that you're doing this public domain stuff. I think that is I think that is so much fun, and there's going to be an opportunity to uncover some really really interesting work. 
Yeah, yeah, that's kind of like, like I, I've gotten some messages, and I, I people have been like, like I understand it. I'll look forward, especially the Twilight Zone one. I'll, I'll look forward to when you get back to the Twilight Zone, blah blah blah. And and I do too. You know, I want to get back yeah. to doing like proper zones, but I think I'll have a better perspective to do those zones after maybe watching some of this other show too. So, Heck yeah, you know, uh, especially like uh, one take is uh, the the presenter for that, the Rod Serling type, who's the director, not the writer actually but he's on screen oh, cool. as uh um oh god now now john newland i believe is his name it's weird he's a, he's more professional more spit and polish better speaking voice than rod serling but he doesn't have that iconic presence at all right you know right <laughs> kind of like how how none of the beatles were like that proficient at their instruments but it just works you know that sort uh -huh. of vibe yeah. yeah although mccartney is a pretty good bass player let's give him that but uh <laughs> yeah but it's the bass i mean that's but uh, slap, yeah, in like, the slap in the basement slap in the basement well, he plays with the pick actually but but you know actually <laughs> I, I got guitars i play along with the beatles and i i do have a i i just playing along because john lennon is just, i could barely play the guitar right he was a good rhythm player he did cool stuff <laughs> yeah so you play along and it's it's usually simple but you know it's yeah I anyway have, i have an appreciation for music to the point that i cannot knock any musician because i have zero ability um so any anybody who picks up a guitar uh recreationally or professionally i have the utmost respect for and and i have never looked at somebody and said you know that guy just isn't very good um because i don't know any better and i know i can't do any better I've, I've once or twice been able to say that but uh <laughs> <laughs> but you're won't a talented musician names. won't call out you're, any a names. you're a talented <laughs> musician i am not um, well, anyway, that, I, I guess that's up for uh, Ring Around the Moon today. So join us next week for Ring Around Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> not, oh. Not really. <laughs>